Welcome back, everyone, for another episode of the Georgia Music Teachers Association podcast. My name is Bebe Lin, Vice President of Membership with GMTA. If you are interested in learning more about our organization, please go to georgiamta.org. Today, we are joined by Susan Andrews. Hello, Susan. Hello. Let's get started. Tell me about what you do and how you got to where you are today. When we graduated from college, my husband and I moved to a small South Georgia town. There he was the band and choral director for the middle school and high school that served that county. And I started teaching piano in my home. And I've been doing that ever since. And that's going on 50 years. I still currently teach in my home. And um, but I also teach in a music school in Lilburn. I have students that encompass a wide range of ages and levels and innate abilities. My youngest student is in first grade, and I have students all the way up to two adults in their 60s. Most of my students are, um, well, I would say they're evenly divided because I have about 17 that are high school students, about 12 that are elementary students, and then 11 middle school students. Some of them are very gifted. Most of them are average students, and there's a few with some learning challenges. Most of them take 30-minute lessons, but some take 45-minute lessons, and two, I think I've got two or three that take hour lessons. In addition to my teaching, I'm also a church organist, and I've been doing that for about the same length of time that I've been teaching. And uh, right now, I'm the organist at the Loganville First United Methodist Church. Great. Can we back up to the very beginning of Susan Andrews as a musician? Did you start on piano? Did you start on organ? What, what were your first lessons like? Why did you start lessons? Walk us through that. Well, my parents were always they always loved music and my mother took lessons as a child and a a young teenager and they encouraged my music. Uh, They started me in lessons. Um, I think I was around in first grade when I started and they were very supportive of me and my lessons all the way through. I didn't start organ until I was in college. I took several semesters of organ but did not really pursue organ as a young child, but I was very interested in organ music. I enjoyed hearing music, uh, organ, fine organ music in my church. This is going to probably um, test the strength of your long-term memory, but do you remember what books and materials you used as a young child in those first lessons? Oh, I do remember that very well. I went through the John W. Shaw method all the way from the beginning to the, the end of that series. Hmm. Can you tell us, like, did you grow up in a city? Did you grow up in a, a more rural area? What, what kind of environment was this? I grew up in Macon, Georgia. And when I was in ninth grade, we moved up to the Atlanta area and we moved to the Stone Mountain area. That, so I basically had two places where I grew up, um, Macon, and then Metro Atlanta. So I guess you could say I was in um, an urban area both times. And then I went to school in Athens. I see. Went to college in Athens. 
Yeah, that must have been UGA then. Yes, yes. Okay. Do you remember what piece from your musical studies as a child got you hooked on music? Well, there were a couple of pieces. I'll start with the organ, the two pieces that really got me as a, uh, got me inspired as a young person were Yezu Joy of Man's Desiring by Bach and the Psalm 19 by Benedetto Marcello. I heard those pieces in, in a church service and made note of them. I looked at the title in the church bulletin and I thought, I, I want to learn those pieces someday when I grow up. So eventually I did learn them and uh, perform them and I have played them many, many times. Another piece that really inspired me, I remember going to a lesson, I was in middle school and before my lesson started, as I walked in, the teacher was practicing and she was practicing the Beethoven Pathetic Sonata, the first movement. And I was just awestruck by it. And I said, oh, you've got to teach me that piece. And in late middle school, I was not technically or, or maturity wise ready for that piece, but she taught it to me anyway. And I remember playing it in a recital, uh, but that piece just really inspired me. And I was also inspired by the Rachmaninoff, the prelude in C-sharp minor, mm -hmm. just the majesty, majesty and grandeur of that piece just really inspired me. And I, at that time, I didn't take lessons in the summer. So one summer I asked my parents to buy that piece of music for me and I worked on it on my own. And I'm sure when I went back to lessons in the fall, there were many things that my teacher had to correct and, and improve on. But I was inspired very much by that piece. My parents had, um, you know, this was before YouTube and, um, and everything where you can get, or music where, where you can just access it online. We had uh, records. And so I would go to the library and check out rec recordings of different piano pieces and bring them home and listen to them on our record player. And um, I was inspired by many of the pieces that I heard. Hmm. Did you start listening to these records of your own initiative or was music and listening to music something that was just done in your household? Well, we listened to music a lot in my household, but I, the classical music, the, it's particularly the piano classical music, was something that I wanted to do. I did it on my own. Interesting. Um, let's talk about practicing. What was practicing like for you as a child? Were you self-motivated or did your parents have to force you? Um, well, I was pretty self-motivated. I don't remember ever having to be forced to practice or no, maybe reminded once in a while, but never, never forced. And I, I still to this day enjoy practicing very much. It's an escape sort of for me. It's a way to leave the anxieties and concerns of the, you know, the life behind and just bury yourself in the music, just get totally absorbed in the music. And so uh, practicing is actually a joy to me. Um, and, and sometimes I have a little bit of a challenge to understand why students resent, resist it so much or why it's a burden to them, because I love practicing. I love seeing a piece progress from um, just notes on the page until you work out the fingering, work out the technical challenges, and then you 
it transforms into a polished performance. That gives me a great deal of feeling of accomplishment. So I, I just find that very fulfilling. You know, um, this is a question that I, I ask frequently in these podcast interviews, you know, about teachers and practicing and what it was like for them as a child. And I find that the majority of the teachers respond that, oh, they had no problem practicing. In fact, they really enjoyed it. And several of the interviews, um, the interviewees have voiced um, curiosity, just like you did, about students that don't. Um, desire to practice or aren't self-motivated. So I guess my question, my follow-up question is, why do you think that is? And do you think maybe that you were the exception or were you the rule? Like among the students that your teacher taught, did most people enjoy practicing? And now there's just a generational and cultural shift? Or were you just like a exceptional student for your teacher, um, just like occasionally we get exceptional students that will practice of their own accord. Well, I think times are obviously much different now because students are involved in so many things. At the time, well, when I was in high school, music was my main focus. I, I did some scouting. Um, I was in Girl Scouts, but that was really my only activity. I didn't do any other sport activities. Um, and of course I had extracurricular activities at school and in, in high school, but they were not as time consuming as some of the extracurricular activities that we see today, uh, like Science Olympiad and just the very, and moot court and various things that require a lot of outside time from the students. So I don't know, I, I guess I was, I feel like I was one of the more dedicated students in my teacher's studios, but I think times were just different then. And I, I had, um, other than devoting time to my schoolwork, piano was my next important thing. And I put a lot of emphasis on that. Well, that leads us really beautifully into the next question, which is why are you a musician and a teacher? Was there someone who was particularly influential in guiding you to this path? Well, I, I knew from a young age that I, uh, I loved music and that um, probably in high school, I felt a direction leading, leaning me into music as a career, as a field of study in college. And I knew that I did not really want to teach in a public school setting. I was more drawn to the individual teaching one-on-one. -on -one. My teachers, I had four teachers in my pre-college years and they were all excellent role models. They gave me a very solid foundation in theory and technique and repertoire. I changed teachers when we moved from Macon up to Stone Mountain. And the other changes of teachers was just because we needed to move, maybe we just felt we needed a change. Um, one was maybe for convenience. So those teachers were excellent influences on me. And then of course in college, my, my college teacher uh, was Carlos Cusra-Coma and he was a, a fabulous musician and a wonderful teacher. And he was a great influence on me. Now, after college, I studied with Janine Morrison 
for a couple of years. And Janine taught seminars in her home and had workshops every summer. And I attended those and I studied. I had private lessons with her too. And in college, I tended to study bigger works that I, I don't teach, like list pieces or um, like Schumann's Carnival in Vienna, you know, just bigger pieces that you typically don't teach your students. But with Janine, we focused on teaching pieces that would be, um, that I would teach more regularly to advanced students. For example, the Schubert Impromptu in A flat, the Chopin F minor Nocturne, and just, we, we just did a number of pieces that I had not learned as a student and, but yet I've used them through the years just over and over again to teach to students. And Janine was just a tremendous influence on me and helped me grow as a teacher because of her insight and her wisdom. And it was not just her knowledge of repertoire, it's just her years of teaching just gave her wisdom that she imparted to all the people that came to her classes. And she was a huge influence on me. Yeah, that's interesting. That is a name that I've heard a couple of times through these interviews. Can you tell me a little more about her? Uh, is she a Georgia native? Where did she do her degrees? Uh, what kind of topics did these seminars, classes cover? Well, I can't, I'm not sure of her, all of her background, but I believe she's a Georgia native. I know she went to Rollins College in Florida and she studied with um, the eminent teacher, John Hughes in New York. She had a piano organ, I'm sorry, a piano duo with um, Joanne Rogers, um, who was Mr. Rogers' wife. They were classmates at Rollins College and they performed all over, all over the country. And they've um, given concerts for the GMTA conference. And um, I had the privilege of meeting Joanne when she came to visit Janine one time when I was at her house. Her topics were just, just over a variety of, of pedagogical subjects. I can't really pinpoint or I don't remember exactly the title of any particular one, but she would deal with various aspects of teaching and technique. She would talk about developing good, good technique in, in young students. And then sometimes she'd talk about more advanced technique. And then we talked a lot about repertoire. Wow. It sounds like she was offering essentially a really intense pedagogy course to independent teachers. Right. And she gave at the end of those classes, she would give uh, teachers that or whoever was attending the classes. It was in the summer. So sometimes there were college age students that would be there. It wasn't just teachers, um, but she would give them an opportunity to perform. So, and it was a small venue. It was in her home, her lovely home in Decatur. So it was, it was a performing opportunity in, that's more intimate than a concert stage. And I, and I thought that was nice. I, I performed a few times for her classes mm. and um, I enjoyed that. Now, Janine is very, very well respected. And she was one of the GM, she was, I believe, our second GMTA teacher of the year second or third. She's just a wonderful lady. Yeah, thank you for that. I, I enjoyed hearing about um, your, your uh, reflection of her. 
Let's talk about, maybe we've already touched on this, but what was your family's relationship with music? Well, they appreciated music very much. And my mother took piano as, as I said, as a child and a uh, young person. And um, she did not pursue it as a career, but she always played for her own pleasure. And we always had um, a nice piano in our home, a nice upright piano. And later in her life, she wanted a grand piano. And so she purchased, uh, my parents purchased a grand piano and I've inherited that. My uh, father was a amateur organist. He liked to play organ, pop, mostly pop music of his generation. And he had a theater organ. Um, He bought a Hammond theater organ and it's now residing in my studio as well. My sister was a vocal major at UGA and there are other members of my family that that have followed in musical footpaths. My daughter took lessons for 12 years from Jean Mann, um, did not pursue music in college, but she still uses her music. Um, She plays for her church. And my um, granddaughter, one of my six grandchildren, uh, took lessons from me for 12 years. And of course, she's not pursuing music either. But all of the family loves music and realizes its importance in our culture. And they love different genres of music, of course. But everybody's my parents were very supportive. They always came to my recitals or any performances that I had. And they did take me to some concerts. Now, not, not a huge number, but I can remember going to concerts like the Atlanta Symphony. So they tried to encourage my musical learning. So what jumped out at me was when you said that your father is an amateur organist and he played uh, pop music on organ. I think this probably shows my ignorance, but uh, was there a time in history where organ was showing up a lot in pop music? Well, no, what I meant, he would. um, Well, now back then, um, organ was kind of, I would say this is in the 80s, 70s and 80s. Organs were popular. Now, they've kind of phased out now, and we have keyboards instead. But his organ has things that most keyboards have now, like different instrument sounds and rhythms and drums and things like that. And so, no, he would just get um, a book of standard music, you know, standard uh, popular music of the day, mm-hmm. songs of like the 70s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and he would play them on his organ. Okay. All right. Thanks for clearing that up for me. Um, how do you approach teaching? What is your teaching philosophy? Well, I feel that everyone should be, well, to have a well-rounded ed- education, we all need to be literate in music. We need to be able to decipher notes on a page. And um, so I think music education is very important, especially in, in the public schools. I'm an advocate for continuing you know, to support music education in the schools, but also private instruction is very important too. And my philosophy is that not everyone that comes in my studio door is going to be equally talented or gifted and they're they're going to have 
many, many different levels of interest. Some are there because their parents want them to take piano. Some want to learn very eagerly. And some have no ability to keep a steady beat. Some of them just can't seem to learn their note names, no matter how many flashcards we use, no matter how many note spellers we use. But each one deserves my patience and my perseverance and just as much as the student that comes in and just is well prepared every week and just learns their pieces so quickly and can memorize and perform with ease. And um, so I have all different levels and a, a teacher has to love children and they have to have an abundance of patience. Mm-hmm. And I feel that that's something I've been blessed with and, and I've needed to draw on that constantly through the past nearly 50 years. I feel like recitals and festivals are a wonderful source of motivation for students. They present the challenge of taking a piece and learning it and overcoming those challenges and hopefully playing it successfully. But they're not for every student. And so it's my job to figure out which students are going to benefit from that type of experience and which students it would negatively impact. Another thing that I have to really work on my own self is that I have to teach each student as an individual and I can't expect students to move at the same pace or to accomplish the same things. I have to find ways to impart information to that student that they can understand and realize that some students are going to take much longer to grasp concepts than others. And I just have to take them as, you know, at their individual pace. And sometimes I have to lower my expectations slightly because not all students can reach the same heights that others can. Most of the students that have been in my studio have not pursued music as a career. But I have had a number that that have, and they're either school teachers, public school teachers, or independent teachers. Some are church musicians, and some are in other musical endeavors. They're doing other things with music. But I feel like that I, my job is to impart to them a skill that's going to enrich their lives. And I hope that I can instill in all of them and a, a feeling of the importance and the significance of music study. And so that they can impart to their children that importance of music study. And so when it goes from one generation to the next generation, that's how we keep music education alive in our culture. And it's such a vital part, an integral part of our culture. And we need to keep that going. So hopefully my students who don't progress to a career in music, Hopefully, they'll be the audiences of the future, that they'll support recitals and concerts, and that they'll encourage their own children to to, uh, learn music. That's great. Tell me about some of the biggest teaching challenges you have faced and how you overcame them. Well, I would have to say the biggest challenge has been the pandemic. Um, I would say, well, before the pandemic, I had never taught a virtual lesson. And I would not have considered myself technologically savvy 
uh, at all. And I'm barely technologically savvy right now, but I have learned a lot, not knowing how long that when the pandemic started, we didn't know how long the quarantine was going to last. And I realized very quickly that if I was going to continue teaching, I would have to learn how to do it virtually. So um, I did teach all my students virtually for a while, for several weeks or months, and um, via FaceTime. And that was mostly successful. And now all of my students are back to in-person learning except for one. And I'm willing to continue with the virtual lessons with him. I, I still feel that for me, virtual teaching is not the very best way to have a comprehensive lesson, but but it, it can work. I think, well, another challenge was the um, not having a recital for 18 months, because usually I have about three recitals a year, and we couldn't do that with the pandemic. So I decided to take video clips of, of my students playing either in their lessons, once we got back to in-person lessons, and then the ones that were doing virtual lessons, I'd tell them to record themselves playing their piece at home and send it to me. And I took those video clips and used iMovie and made short 15 minute mini recitals. And I put them on my YouTube channel and then shared them um, the unlisted link with uh, the parents and told them that they they were free to share that with family and friends. And um, so we had two recitals that way, one last fall and one last spring. And so using technology for for meetings, which we've all had to do, and for um, even festivals and conferences have been done through uh, virtually, um, as well as for the lessons and recitals, that just shows that we have learned to adapt to challenging circumstances. And another important thing that it's done, it's enabled us to keep our connections, our, our personal connections in the time of isolation. And that's so important to us mentally and emotionally to be able to still have connections with people when we're having to be isolated, when we're having to be quarantined. Um, So that was a real challenge. But another challenge, and I've already touched on a little bit, was the over involvement of students. Most of my students take piano, but they're also in scouting. They probably do a sport. Um, There's extracurricular activities. And then their siblings are also involved in all these things. Uh, They may be in another form of art like dance. And the travel time to and from all these activities, it just takes away from their time that they have to devote to practice and not to mention screen time that they are all doing. So that has been a real challenge. And I don't have an answer for that. I just have to draw on my patience again. And um, when somebody comes in, a lot of times they'll be upfront with me and say, I, I did not have time to practice this week. And I, you know, draw on that patience and we talk about it a little bit and, and I encourage them to do better the following week. But we use that lesson time to practice their assignment. And in a way, that's a that's a benefit because it can instill good practice habits in the students, which a lot of times they don't always pay attention to. So we I reinforce 
the way the the ways that they should be practicing at home. It's like slow practice. Play this section hand separately. You know, let's analyze this chord here. Let's see let's see the progression of the chords. So we reinforce good practice habits. Um, if I see a trend, though, if I see you know several weeks in a row of lack of practice, then I will talk to the parent and see if they can intervene and help help with time management because sometimes it's just a matter that students don't know how to manage their time wisely and don't know how to prioritize and sometimes it just they just need some guidance in that area. Um, I want to back up quite a bit for a follow-up question. You were talking about virtual lessons and technology, and I think at this point we have all been teaching uh, quite a bit virtually, and some of us have continued to do so, and you hinted at in your answer that it's less than ideal than being in person. I wonder if you can break it down for us. Like why, why is virtual lesson not as successful or as ideal for, for you? Um, what are the differences? What are things that online lessons can't substitute for or replace? Well, it's, for me, I often write notes in the students' music. I'll circle a finger number or circle a, a chord or write slow down or, you know, just make notes of the music. And I also, I, every lesson, I'm, I, they have a notebook and I write down their assignment, the, the book and the assignment and what they should be doing, whether practicing hands separately, hands together, you, what metronome marking they should be working on that week and all of that. Well, during a less, uh, virtual lesson, I'm not there to write all that down. I know I could do it and send it to them, but still it's much, it's a little more time efficient if I'm in person and I can just lean over and write on the music and, and I'm sitting there writing in their notebook while they're playing. It's just a little bit more, or if I can say they're, they're holding their hand a certain way. Um, maybe they're letting their fifth finger collapse or something. And I can, if I'm right there beside them, I can show them, you know, curve your finger this way. Whereas when you're virtually, you can show them, but it's, it's a little different. Yeah. I, I think maybe one of the things that I have experienced is exactly what you said. There, there are some inefficiencies that are tied in with virtual lessons. You know, like if I want to show a student my hand position, suddenly I have to adjust my camera angle. And now I have to move my camera off of my tripod into another position. And then I have to ask them, do you see it? Do you see the difference? No, I can't. And now I have to find another position. Whereas in person, the reaction is much more immediate and the feedback and the, the change is much much more immediate. Whereas virtual, I have to rely on a lot of descriptors, a lot of various camera angles, a lot of try this, no, that's not working, try this, no, that's not working. Whereas in person, you know, I can just, you know, move their hand, adjust here, adjust there. Um, and it, it just requires the student be a lot more aware of their physical body, your, their shoulders, their elbow, in a way that most students aren't yet, especially for younger students. I, I find that it just takes a lot of time to get anything done for virtual lessons. Well, and another thing, well, a couple of other things. Um, some of my students play on keyboards 
Mm-hmm. And that's and when they have their lesson, you know, we're at a at a piano, and sometimes their their height of their bench is not right, or their distance from the keyboard is just not right. So that's why I my preference would be to teach in person. But then another thing, and this is a problem with all technology, I had a virtual lesson. I taught the virtual lesson yesterday. And in the middle of the lesson, the connection was lost. And it said poor connection. So we sat there for about 30 seconds waiting for it to resolve. And it never did. And so then it finally, we lost the connection entirely. And I had to recall, you know, recall the student. And so that's just, it just takes time to deal with things like that. And when a phone call comes in, you know, there, then you have that little interruption in the, in the connection. So that's why I said, to me, it's not the best way to teach, but I'm very glad that I do teach that way because a lot of times now, even the students that have returned to in-person lessons, I had just a couple of weeks ago, two different families said someone in the family had COVID and that they, uh, not the child that was taking the lesson, but just somebody in the family and they could not bring the child to the lesson. And um, so we did a virtual lesson. And for some, there's maybe a conflict and they don't have, it conflicts and makes it impossible for the parent to get the student to the lesson. And so they'll ask me, can I do a virtual lesson that day? And I'll say, sure. And so that has um, been good. That has been a way to teach lessons that otherwise I would have had to cancel or they would have had to cancel. And then I would have had to find a way to make that lesson up. Sure, sure. This is going to be our last question. Tell me about your time in GMTA and MTNA. How did you hear about the organization and what has being part of this organization meant to you? When we moved to Lawrenceville, I went to a local music store and the owner of that store had just recently collaborated with the area music teachers to establish the Gwinnett County Music Teachers Association. So it's a very young association at that time, maybe less than a year in existence. Um, But he said, well, why don't you come to the meeting and it's going to be so-and-so. So I, I wanted to go and meet some of the other teachers. And I did and became involved fairly quickly. I went to the state conference that year and I was inspired to become more involved with the association. I have to give tribute to my mentor, Aurelia Campbell, who recently passed away. And Aurelia was just a huge influence on me. She was a past GMTA president and I was on her board when she was president and any success that I had when I was president and other positions that I had, I uh, attribute to her influence and her guidance. I also served on the Southern division. I was the senior competition chair for a number of years and I've served on a number of national committees like the nominating committee and various committees. So serving in the organization has always been something that I've I've enjoyed and I've done it at one level or another for as long as I've been teaching. And I, I think it's so important 
serving beyond the local association lets you see the nationwide scope of the organization and it enables you to make connections with other uh, teachers in other states and attending the conferences has been both on the state and the national conferences have been great learning experiences for me and I feel that my membership in a professional organization, as well as my national certification, signifies that I'm going to strive to meet the highest standards of the music teaching profession, and that continuing education is vital to, to my teaching. And it also shows that I want to advocate for the continuing music education in our culture. So I, I just think it's very important to be a member of the group and the, the connections that I've made, the friends that I've made and just the things that I've learned, they have made me the teacher that I am today. And they are a constant source of encouragement and motivation. Mm. Wow, thank you, Susan. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for talking us to us about your career and your teaching philosophy. And thank you for your service uh, for this organization, both on the state level and the regional and national level. I'm sure we have all been beneficiaries of your legacy and your service. So I thank you for that. I wish you happy teaching and happy students. <laughs>